The reading will be Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And he said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live with, can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us, Whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. Then the Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go. Tell them to return to their tents. But you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you'll come to possess. This is the word of the Lord. So we're talking about, uh, yeah, what, what it's like to meet God. What, what happens when you encounter God face to face or, or as close to face to face as is humanly possible? And as we start, I want to take you back to a, a very special moment in my life. Uh, about eight years ago, I'm uh, standing uh, in the midst of a crowd of, of thousands, many thousands. We're craning forward, uh, just we're, we're kind of packed in, and we're, our gaze is transfixed on the scene before us. All of a sudden, fire billows up. The noise is so loud, I can feel it in my chest. And then there are these moments of eerie silence as well. All of us, we're, we're overwhelmed by the, the splendor of this moment, the glory of it all. It, it draws us in, and yet I feel hesitant as well, like I'm being just warned off too. My awe quickly turns to anxiety as a man emerges from the crowd. He's like a moth drawn to a flame as he dashes towards the, the central, the most sacred space. I feel my breath catch in my chest. He shouldn't be there. How can he stand in the presence of such a moment? And sure enough, within a few seconds, he receives 
the due punishment for his transgression. We see his progress fizzle out. I'm transfixed and I'm feeling this odd combination of fear and excitement. I guess you would say I'm overawed. I can't wait for the real event to begin. And I often look back on this moment because of how religious it felt. But I wasn't at a church or a temple. Uh, I wasn't even at a volcano or some other natural wonder. I was at the MCG, (laughs) sometimes called the temple down the road. It was the start of the 2015 World Cup cricket final. And the whole opening ceremony was designed with, with fire and loud throbbing music. This reverential tone left us in awe and wonder at what was about to unfold. It was designed to tell us this is really important. Pay attention. Make sure you're watching. And it had this twofold effect on us. It, it drew us in and attracted our attention. But it also warned us don't come too close. This is not safe territory for a mere mortal out on the field, as that streaker found out as he was tackled by the security guards. (laughs) Every time I think back on that event, I'm actually unsettled a bit by just how religious it felt. Maybe you notice some similarities with what we heard in Deuteronomy 5 about an overwhelming encounter with God full of fire and smoke and a loud voice. There was glory that both drew people in, that they want to know what God is saying, and yet it also scared them off. They couldn't bear to to be with Him directly. And this morning, we're thinking, what should we make of such experiences as these? Not so much the, the manufactured sporting shows, but the overwhelming encounter with God, the the vision of divine glory that we have in Deuteronomy. Is it true? Is this what it's like to meet God? Perhaps you've heard stories of people who claim to have encountered God and it's changed their life. Is this this what it's like? Should we trust these accounts and take them seriously? Do, Do they point us to a glorious and transcendent God who we should worship and obey and, and in fearful reverence? Or are we a bit more cynical? Are they psychological projections, illusions that we should treat with suspicion? Uh, after all, Karl Marx, the famous political theorist, the founder of communism, would tell us that religion is, is man-made, it's the opium of the people, right? It's like a drug, an illusion that denies reality And so it ought to be discarded and dismantled. And and many today, following in the vein of Marx, would happily see religion as a tool of fear used by the powerful to control and manipulate the masses. And perhaps there was an element of that at the cricket as well. When we look at today's passage from Deuteronomy, well, yeah, we can see the fear. We can see the power that Moses has, right? He alone is going to listen to the voice of God and bring that word to the people, shouldn't we be suspicious? Aren't we sceptical of supposed prophets who claim to speak from God, but are really lining their own pockets? 
or, or political leaders who control and manipulate people through pro- propaganda and pageantry and fear. Sometimes I wonder, have, have I been duped? Is this whole thing a charade, an illusion blinding me to reality? But then on the other hand, a, a more traditional view of God would say, well, fear is the right response. God is almighty and sovereign. We should fear and obey. God is powerful and awesome. Humans are made to worship and bow to Him. So we should obey God, not question Him. And if fear helps us do that, what's the problem? He's God, we're not. And whether you subscribe to this view or not, I wonder if it seeps into your outlook on life in more subtle ways. When you think about who God is, do you see the cold rule maker and judge that you have to obey? This God is scary, perhaps distant, you can't really draw near, but you know you have to do what He says. Or maybe it seeps into how we use our authority as parents or as leaders at work. Do we use threats and cold distance? to ensure respect and compliance. I'm in charge, you must obey. Perhaps a little fear helps get the point across. So is this the picture of God that we're getting here? Well, let's have a look at our passage. Let's see how this first audience uh, interpreted their encounter with God. Let's see how it stacks up compared to these two modern approaches. Our passage today is part of a speech given by Moses to the people who will become the Israelites. We've been working through the first five chapters of Deuteronomy. And you might remember that the Israelites, their God has rescued them with great power out of slavery in Egypt, with plagues, parting the Red Sea. They wander in the desert for 40 years and now they're on the verge of the land that God has promised to give them. And Moses is speaking to them urging them to stay true to the God who saved them, the one who's their rightful God. Just before this passage, Moses outlined the Ten Commandments that God had spoken to them at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. And now in our passage, in verse 23, he takes them back, he reminds them what that moment was like. Verse 23, When you heard the voice out of the darkness... While the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. I think we've got verse 24 now. And we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. They saw the fire with their own eyes. They heard the voice. Moses didn't tell them that God was big and scary. They saw and heard for themselves. And they were petrified. Verse 25, they say, But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Their hearts are pounding, right? The hands are shaking. This is not meant to happen. You're not meant to hear God speaking directly. 
You're not meant to stare down a bushfire and live to tell the tale. The fire and the smoke and the darkness are too much. The voice of God is too much. They, they want to know what he's saying, but they don't want to die. So they tell Moses in verse 27, Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says, then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. That They want to hear from God, they want to obey, but it's too much. God's glory is both attractive and exciting, but he scares them. He's, he's too much, he's not safe. And so they, they point to Moses, you go. You go, Moses, you put yourself in danger. You listen to God and you can tell us. You be our mediator, our go-between. So I don't think Moses is using them and controlling them here. If anything, it's the other way around. The leaders of the people are pushing Moses forward and saying, you take the risk, you go and listen to God, and then we'll listen to you. Well, what should we make of this? Is this the right way to respond to God? The Lord answers in verse 28, I've heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Their fear and awe is spot on. God is overwhelming. They're right to recognize their own vulnerability before this infinitely holy and powerful God who can stand in His presence. And if we struggle a bit with this idea that God is awesome and untamable, that His very presence could be a threat to us, then perhaps our idea of God is a bit small. Perhaps Marx is right about us, that our religion is a man-made construction and our God is too domesticated, just a kind of slightly inflated version of ourselves. Perhaps a genie to serve our desires rather than the true creator and ruler of our whole universe. The, the one who's utterly other and distant, different, beyond our control. And he reveals himself in this overwhelming fire and smoke and darkness. It's like a volcanic eruption, it sounds like. Or, or a, a bushfire closer to home. And yet God... Did you notice he, he controls it? They're not consumed, they're not destroyed. God challenges our preconceptions. He's not just here to serve us and look after us. He is bigger and, and more awesome and frankly more terrifying than we could imagine. The awe and the fear of the Israelites is not wrong here. In fact, there's a hint that actually maybe it doesn't go deep enough. Look at verse 29, God goes on, He says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep my commands always, keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear God always. Not, not just now on the mountaintop when the smoke still stings their nostrils and the experience is fresh. But always, when the mental image of the fire fades, when their memory dulls, will they still fear God and follow Him? 
God looks into their hearts. He also reveals his own heart here. Did you see that? This glorious, thundering God, look at where his heart is. He wants them to prosper. He wants the best for them. He longs for them to follow his commands, not because he wants to oppress them, but because he wants the best for them, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Sometimes we think of God's commands as kind of like uh, Simon says, right? Arbitrary rules. If God says it, you have to do it because he's God and, and he said it, God says. But actually there's more to it than that as well. The God giving these commands to Israel is also the God who created the world that they live in. He knows how it works. He wants them to prosper in it. And so he gives them commands that actually help them to prosper. They're like the cheat codes of the universe. And when you think about it, there's a reason that most societies don't allow murder. We've kind of worked out that things go better for everyone if we don't allow people to go around taking life. Because murder leads to grief and revenge. It's a waste of the most precious gift. And, and God wants them to prosper, not just economically, but also relationally and morally and communally. And so he says, don't murder, and likewise, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. God's commands are not only good because he says so, they're also good for people. They lead to prosperity and flourishing. And central to them, the first commandment, the, the greatest cheat code, if you like, is not that there are many gods and you may worship whichever one you choose, God says the first commandment, back in, in verse 7 of chapter 5, before our passage, he says that there is only one true God, and so you should worship him alone. Don't worship false gods, don't worship inventions or illusions. God, God knows that these are possibilities, but he doesn't want us to live under falsehood. He doesn't want us to live fearing something that isn't truly God or someone that isn't truly God. Does that make sense? He wants us to fear Him alone so that we don't have to fear everything else. I wonder what else you and I fear apart from God. What else do we obey because we're anxious about the consequences? Are we too worried to, about pleasing people? Too worried about what they'll think of us? When we fear something or someone, we obey them. We give them control over our lives, over us. But if there's only one God and He wants the best for us, He's the only one we should fear. So Moses urges the people to obey this God, their God. Verse 32, he says, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So will they? Will they walk in obedience? They've heard the voice of God. They've seen the fire and the smoke, His glory and majesty. But they haven't seen 
him, we don't get images of God. We get a voice, we get words from God. And so the Bible is a book, not a photo album. So what will they do with God's word to them? Will they listen and obey him? Will their fear lead them to reverent respect? With this, to this healthy awe for who God is? Or will fear drive them to actually resent God? Will they forget his greatness and rebel against him? Think about it for yourself for a moment. How do you respond to the fearful majesty of God? When God's word speaks with power into your life, when God challenges your sin, or when you're overwhelmed by how much more awesome God is than you had realized. When God leaves you in awe, how do you respond? Do you want to hide away? Do you resent God's intrusion into your life? You just want things to go back to normal as soon as possible? If you haven't had an experience like this, then how do you think you will respond when you meet God? If God's word can be trusted, if he is fearful and awesome, and frankly, any God worthy of the name must be, then how will you respond when you meet him? Faced with his awesome majesty and glory, what will be revealed in your heart? So on that day, we will be overwhelmed. I fear for myself God's glory will show up my my shallowness, my half-heartedness, my my willful rebellion against him and, and my stubborn refusal to to revere him how will I stand before this consuming fire how will you stand sadly as we read on in the Old Testament Israel's heart does grow cold they waver in their loyalty to God they deliberately disobey him they wander to the left and to the right ultimately their time in the land is cut short and they do not prosper Like us, they need a new mediator, someone to draw near to God for us so that we're not destroyed by his presence. And God promises just such a mediator, but Moses is long gone. And so the New Testament opens with a promised child, someone whose heart is different, whose heart is inclined to fear the Lord alone, who always follows his Father's will. He cannot be faulted for his lifelong obedience, his wholehearted obedience and genuine love for God. And as he grows, it turns out he's an altogether better mediator even than Moses. Where Moses spoke the word of God to people, Jesus is the word of God come in the flesh. Where Moses shielded people from God's glory, In Jesus, we see God's glory without it destroying us. Where our sin and rebellion against God make us fearful of His majesty, Jesus stands in between. And rather than 
prospering in the, lo- in the land, though, as God had promised to those who fear Him. He actually lays down His perfect life for us. He becomes like us and stands in our place, our representative. He faces the awesome glory of God, the consuming fire. And He dies under the judgment of God against sin. He is overwhelmed. And yet God is still in control. In His great power, in His majesty, He raises Jesus from the dead, gives Him new life. And in Christ, He raises us to new life too. Our mediator lives on and so therefore do we. Our representative has been through the fire and so if Christ is your Lord, you have been through the fire too. And he continues to to mediate for us, pouring out God's very presence, not as a consuming fire now, but as God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We encounter God living with us. Six hours after that quasi-religious experience I had at the start of the cricket, uh, the mood had changed. Uh, The game finished and Australia won. Uh, I'll spare you the drama of the game. It actually wasn't even close. Uh, But we were world champions and now 93,000 people, minus the Kiwis, were absolutely overjoyed. In the centre of the field, the players showered each other with uh, credit to so-and-so for their hard work, credit to so-and-so for their hard work. And they enjoyed the glory of their win. We, the crowd, got to bask in the reflection of that glory, but just from the sidelines, of course. No longer was this glory scary and ominous. It was joyful, it was exultant, spilling over because the battle was finished, the war had been won. Now, apparently, there are bigger things in life even than sport, as Eleanor reminded us a few weeks back. And the war that Jesus won is one of them. When we approach God, the war against sin and evil has been won. The battle is over. And the amazing thing is that even though we deserve none of the credit, we we didn't work hard for this victory, Yet God invites us into the very centre of the celebrations. Listen to how Hebrews 12 describes it. Talking to Christians in verse 18 and reflecting on Deuteronomy 5 as well. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
and down in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Can you see God's glory is undiminished, but now it is exultant, celebratory, and we are welcome, actually, to approach Him in worship, still with reverence and awe, but now with thankfulness, joining that joyful assembly of the angels. Because the battle is over. Jesus has overcome our sin and weakness. He remains our mediator, ushering us into the center of God's glory with great joy. So friends, as we finish, it's not naive to fear God. Because if we fear the only true God, we need fear no one else. And in fact, if you trust in Christ, we don't need to fear to meet God. No, we are welcome to draw near, to give our heart completely to the one who passed through the fire for you. And so now we approach God and we enjoy his glory for eternity. That's the invitation of Jesus.